Hey friends, here we go again. It's great to have you with me here today. For new listeners, my name is Simon Hill, physiotherapist, currently finishing my master's in nutrition and host of this show, The Plant Proof Podcast. Each week, I get to sit down with super cool folks from all walks of lives, doctors, nutritionists, athletes, people who have overcome chronic illness, and much more to have conversations that can help us become more mindful and conscious of the way that we live. Did you know that of all chronic diseases, dementia uses up the most amount of healthcare funds? Well, today I sat down with Drs. Dean and Aisha Scherzai, neurologists from California who are leading the way when it comes to lifestyle medicine and neurological degenerative disease. Two absolutely brilliant minds that broke away from the traditional Western pharmaceutical-focused neurology approach to broaden their understanding of what the risk factors are for these diseases and how we can modify our lifestyles to prevent them from occurring in the first place. Get the notepads out. Certainly an episode that you're going to want to pause and ponder or come back to and listen for a second or perhaps even a third time. Why do some people seem to escape Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, whilst others with the same genetics are not so fortunate? What are the early telltale symptoms of cognitive decline? What should we be eating for brain health? Are fats and dietary cholesterol important? Where does the science lie? We discuss this and more in detail. One of my favorite apps yet. Let's do this. All right, Dr. Aisha and Dean Sherzai, Team Sherzai, welcome yes. to the Plant Proof Podcast. Thank you for having us. We're excited to be here. It's, uh, it's awesome to be. Where are we actually? I got an Uber over here. <laughs> <laughs> We're in Redondo Beach. Redondo Beach. Yes. Okay. It's, it's actually not, not great of me to have relied on an Uber to get over here, given that we're <laughs> going to be talking about brain health. I didn't use, use my brain at all. With your uh, busy life, it makes busy, sense. Yeah. 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 So what's, what's Redondo Beach known for? You know, I'm presuming the beach, but what else? Redondo Beach is known for uh, probably the most innovative healthcare model in the, in the world. Wow. And that's why we're here. We, we work in Loma Linda University. That's another amazing place because it's the only blue zone in America. We're the directors of Alzheimer's Prevention Program in Loma Linda. We work there two days and they've asked us to come here and implement a brain health uh, initiative uh, in uh, beach cities, which is Manhattan Beach, Redondo Beach, and Hermosa Beach. The only program of its type in the country. So raising awareness about brain health and lifestyle and um, a big study, 1,700 people 500 intensive, 1,200 observational, looking at lifestyle and its effect on cognitive aging. So the only program of this type in the country, and we are honored to be in charge of it and uh, doing this amazing, uh, amazing program. Wow, it's amazing. Yeah. No, no doubt once we sort of get into the nitty gritty, we can start to hear about some of the things that you guys are seeing. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm super excited to be here with you guys today to talk about brain health, and in particular, how we can set up our lifestyle, especially nutrition, mm -hmm. to achieve long-term brain health, to, to minimize our chance of developing neurological conditions like dementia, in, including Alzheimer's disease and, and 
out of everyone in the world. This is this is your domain. So I'm super pumped to be here and better hear it first, firsthand. We heard about you a while ago and uh, the amazing work you're doing and uh, the the fact that you're changing the world. And it, it takes this kind of leadership. I mean, if there was a time that we were advising our nieces and nephews to stay away from social media and so on and so forth. Now we're all in mm-hmm. because this is the I future. Know, you guys are doing a great job. I've seen your your kids are actually have have profile, right? Is that your they kids? They do, yes. Yeah. They are the science kids. The science kids. So yeah. shout out to the science kids. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I had a look and I was like, this is really neat. It's cool what they're doing. They're, they're actually one book ahead of us. They've written their second book now. Oh, wow. Uh, and the second one is on health. The first one is was on, on environment and animals, and uh, the second one is on health. Kids these days. Yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> now, before we, we dive into your backgrounds and get up to speed with like all of the amazing work that you're doing and the research that you're doing and what you're seeing clinically, why don't we kick things off by summarizing why this conversation is so important? Mm-hmm. What is the incidence and overall burden of the common neurological diseases or disorders that you guys are seeing? I'm glad we're having this conversation because um, in our field of work in neurology, Dean and I deal with the disease part of it. I mean, that's how the healthcare system has been set up. The first point of contact with an individual outside of the hospital is when they have manifested disease. And so we're focusing on diseases of the mind, uh, memory problems, such as Alzheimer's disease. You know, dementia is the bigger category. Alzheimer's is the main type of dementia. And the numbers are very scary. It's incredibly ignorant of us if we don't talk about it uh, today with numbers such as, you know, 5.8 million people living with Alzheimer's in, Alzheimer's, in, in the United States alone today. With one individual, every 66 second, one individual is being diagnosed. And that is actually an underestimation because in a lot of communities, people don't understand the signs and symptoms of dementia, so they never bring it up. They think it's a part of aging, that it's normal for somebody, an elderly, to have memory problems, and it's not. So a lot of them actually don't even come to surface. And the cost is just incredible. The numbers were crazy this year. In 2017, they estimated that the cost, the direct cost of Alzheimer's disease is $259 billion. And that was just the direct cost. So, so talk, talk me through that. Like, well, what are those costs? And, and I guess <laughs> clinically, how are these people presenting? Why, why is so much money being spent? Obviously, they require yeah. a significant amount of care. Um, maybe maybe sort of paint the picture on that. Yeah, absolutely. So the direct cost was two fifty nine. The indirect cost was another two hundred forty billion in U.S. alone. Now this is in comparison to the second most expensive disease, which is heart disease, at one hundred twenty billion. And third biggest category as far as cost is concerned is cancers, all cancers, at sixty billion. So sixty billion, one hundred twenty billion. There might be some questions up and down, plus or five, uh, minus five or ten. Alzheimer's, nearly 500 billion all costs. Where is that cost coming from? And that's now. This isn't a disease that's the fastest growing epidemic in the world, not communicable. And in UK, it's number one cause of mortality, morbidity. In Japan, is number one and it's growing in all these countries and it will be number one in the US. And the so co- it'll, it'll supersede cardiovascular disease. It's already supersede. Already. Remember, the cardiovascular disease was 120 billion. Uh, Alzheimer's alone. 500 billion, direct and indirect. That's incredible. And it will be nearly $2 trillion by 2040 to 2050, which will overwhelm our healthcare system, not just here, throughout the world. 
Australia, England, uh, you name it, everywhere, Japan. Uh, and even more importantly, the, deve- the developing countries or the secondary development like China and India, this paradox. So the cost is growing and where's the cost coming from? First, diagnosis. So the healthcare system is, or we call it the sick care system, which is important. We do clinic work, we do hospital work. By the time they get to you, they're sick. So you're taking care of the sick. Healthcare, we believe, is in the communities and in the households. That, so the sick care system is quite cynical. Somebody comes in with the, the memory problems. They come in, we do blood tests, a thousand or so. We do MRI, another $2,000. Evaluation by doctors a couple of times. And by the time they're done, they're given an Aricept and another medicine, which has never been claimed to slow the disease down. Altogether, thousands of dollars. That's just diagnosis and treatment. Then at home, what happens is this person who was expected to work is expected to take care of themselves. They're not. So somebody else has to take care of them. That's a cost. That's a cost. That's a job that somebody has to take care of a debilitated person, cognitively debilitated person. That's profound cost, not just a year, not just two years. We're talking about 10, 15 longer years of somebody else being paid to take care of them. The family members staying away from work because they have to stay home once a week or twice a week just because something went awry. Because none of us, not even us as neurologists, we both had two grandparents that had Alzheimer's. None of us were aware of the totality of this disease, the profound, overwhelming nature of this disease. And it devastates families. Money is lost, stolen. People who've developed a, you know, their, their, their livelihood for over 60, 70 years, all of a sudden, everything is lost because they become disinhibited. They start spending or others take it away. So it's a, the most debilitating, I'm not talking about the individual level, at the family level, at the community level, the most debilitating, destructive disease there is. And up to now, all we've been doing is diagnosis and a pill that doesn't do anything to slow it down, just symptomatically treats it for a few years. But the disease continues. That's how cynical it was. And the research was all molecular and myopic. One molecule, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars, and failure after failure after failure. 100% failure. So, And are these, are these people living shorter lives than the average person? They do. By, 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 by the fact that they develop disease in their 60s or 70s and the disease lasts 10 years or so, usually they do live uh, shorter. But in general, it's not so much the longevity because it's plus or minus a few years. It's the fact that the quality of those years, the quality of those years are not there. It's, 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 I, I, I can compare it to... It's anxiety-ridden. I actually, we actually treat the anxiety and the fear more than we treat the memory problems. To me, memory, you know, you lose memory. We can't do anything about it anyway after the fact. So is the anxiety and the fear a result of being conscious that they're losing their memory and cognition? Correct. Yes. Correct. No, that's part of it. Yeah. And And later on, actually, it's more than that. Later on, they start not identifying people around them. And, and more advanced Alzheimer's where people actually don't even know that there are humans around them. And it's imagine if you're in an alien world and people are coming at you, the hallucinations and all these things. So it's, it's a, a devastating disease that we have to address a different way. That's why we, we took the path we did. And let's just go a little bit more micro before mm-hmm. we sort of wind back the clock and learn about your journeys and then get into the science. What, what are the basic sort of functions that these people start to have 
difficulty with it at the at the start of the sort of spectrum and then towards the end of the spectrum clinically how are they presenting what how is it actually affecting their quality of life um so initially usually um, for alzheimer's it's usually short-term memory so a lot of men especially come to me and say i'm fine the wife brought them in say i'm fine i can remember 50 years back it's just a breakfast i can't remember sometimes well that's the problem Long-term memory is stored differently from short-term memory. Short-term memory, for, for lack of a better concept here in short, is, is a very tenuous state. It's in a very small area of the brain called the hippocampus, the size of half your thumb, and it's stored there. And, and that area, as it happens, is also very uh, susceptible to hypoxia, lack of oxygen, to all, all kinds of calamities, as well as the, the degenerative process. So the short-term memory is affected first. In fact, even prior to that, focus is affected first. In general, aging, focus is affected first. And we'll get to that, why that's an important fact. Then it's short-term memory. And then later on, then what, what, what's affected is a, a visual spatial. So the person actually has good vision, but they can't figure out their spaces. And then executive function where activities that they could do before, now they're having difficulty with, you know, cooking, uh, taking care of their medicine, uh, writing checks, driving, all these things become a challenge, a significant challenge. And, and, and then later on, it's the behavior. Sometimes behavior happens earlier as well. And then these areas become worse and worse and worse. And imagine sometimes you're aware or sometimes you're subconsciously, subconsciously aware of uh, the deficit as it progresses. That There's nothing more depressing than that. Yeah. And we see this on a, on a daily basis now. Okay. I think you've, you've perfectly set up this conversation now to sort of paint that picture as to how significant this disease is at a personal level, but also at a community and, and sorry, country level. Let's, let's wind it back a bit and, and are you guys ready to do this? Absolutely. Let's, let's, let's go through how you ended up in neurology in the first place as experts in dementia and Alzheimer's, authors of the Alzheimer's Solution. Take me back to your journeys through medical school, mm-hmm. where, where you sort of developed your interest in this space and what time that was and, and how you guys met. Like Dean said, uh, we both had grandparents who uh, suffered from dementia and we both saw them go through this painful journey and we saw how our, our parents were affected by it. My grandfather, my father's father was an incredibly intelligent an amazing man. He was a surgeon. He was trained at Columbia University and he had a master's in public health from Johns Hopkins. And he was a community leader and just an all all around amazing human being and our hero growing up. And I saw my grandfather, you know, get to a point where he slowly and gradually lost parts of himself. I mean, he came to a point where he couldn't recognize his children. Um, he didn't know how to eat. He forgot how to walk. He forgot how to do all of his activities of daily living and the fear and the anxiety that was associated with it, where he would start crying, thinking that people were trying to hurt him. And, you know, he got to a point where uh, my mother and father were completely dedicated to him and helping him with very, very basic things. And, and then he passed away. And so it was, you know, years and years of seeing my grandfather go through this. And it was just painful, but fascinating at the same time to see this incredibly strong person completely change into this frightened child. And so I was always fascinated by, by the brain, by the mind and understanding it. And 
went to medical school to become somebody like him and also with the thought that we would find a treatment for for dementia. That was the goal. And um, I remember meeting Dean for the first time and, you know, the, the circumstances of our meeting, that's a completely different story. We met thousands and thousands of miles away from here. I was with Doctors Without Borders. Um, I um, volunteered with them every summer during medical school to go out in different countries and help out. And I ended up in Afghanistan and my, my parents are from Afghanistan. So I wanted to understand, you know, to see if I can help out and, you know, understand where my, my great grandfathers and ancestors came from. And I remember being in a, in a refugee camp in, in a tent and Dean was there and he was working with the World Bank then. Yes. And uh, I had gone back as well. I was at the time working at NIH, National Institutes of, Institutes of Health in Experimental Therapeutics Branch. I mean, it's, it's as molecular and as esoteric as you get. And um, same thing, same background. My grandfather, same thing. We grew up in, in Virginia and uh, and uh, I remember we had a farm and this brilliant man would sit around playing chess and all the kids come. And, and then one day he forgot how to move a knight. You know, Knight has this little funky move, L-shaped move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He forgot, and everybody just was aghast, shocked, and and that that trauma still stays with with all of us, and especially with me. And I think that that was the nightest of how we kind of went in towards neurology, although we didn't know that until later. We actually talked about that. That was our first conversation. Our first conversation that was about this, and then we met in Afghanistan. I was I went back with the World Bank, and they asked me to help create the whole plan there, and then became deputy minister of health, the youngest deputy minister of health there. And then in Asia, we created the whole healthcare plan around the women's empowerment thing, which was several. And then we met and we dated in Afghanistan. And um, that's that's then. And then the first conversation was about grandparents. And then the first conversation was about Alzheimer's, and which both of us, uh, our grandparents developed. And then we came back and uh, got married and uh, took an alternative path. Although we went to the main universities, UCSD was number one in neuroscience, uh, Leontal was the father of all neuroscience, and I worked with him. But uh, on the way out of that fellowship, we said, we're going to go do something different. And instead of doing the same molecular stuff, we said, we're going to take a risk. And I remember she was doing fMRI research, functional MRIs and all that. She on published, She published two humongous papers, and she spoke in front of uh, 5,000 people in one of the talks. And we, we said, we're going to go do, uh, find out if there's an alternative and we're, we will look at uh, populations where people have lived healthfully and see if there's a correlation with brain health as well. And our mentor said, are you crazy? You just graduated from NIH and UCSD and you're going to, you can take any felt, any job you want. I said, uh, yeah, and that's the end of your career. It's and death. I mean, yeah, like you, you, you guys are uh, sort of talking about lifestyle modification. Yes. There, right? Yes. That's. that's you know, the other end of the spectrum. Complete. <laughs> <and> almost <laughs> mid. Yeah, they would, they would, they would laugh at they, that. They did laugh. They did laugh. They did laugh. Yeah. And, and said that your careers would, would die. I said, that's a good way to die, you know, to live with your passions and with, with some new ideas instead of following the same brick path. Is that because they genuinely thought that no matter what lifestyle modifications were made, it wouldn't have a significant effect on such diseases? Absolutely. Absolutely. That and the fact that when, when academicians, the path of acad academia is quite complex. Four years of medical school, well, starts at college. You have to really work hard so you become very myopic. And then medical school makes you even more myopic. You, have, you don't even, you know, it's, it's your library and pathology department and the anatomy department and that's it. 
that's eight years. Then four years of residency or longer, neurosurgery is seven years. So already you're well into past the decade, well past the decade. Then a fellowship. So by the time you're out, 12, 13, 14 years later, you're a different human being that has been primed in one direction. And if you've done a PhD, 16, 17 years, and all you know is grant writing, that, mo- that molecular grant, and you can't even see a world around that. Zooming right. There's no way yeah. to get lookouts. I mean, these are brilliant people, but this tells you the power of just being washed into a system. And, and uh, so two reasons. One is they don't think lifestyle works. Second is because they're cynical about lifestyle because the 10 minutes you have with the patient, there's no way you can change their life. And nobody does. You don't learn it during medical school. You've heard the statistics as far as how many hours medical students are uh, you know, given for training for lifestyle and nothing. And thirdly, because they're so zoomed into their own little, not, not a bad way. They do an amazing job with sick care. But this alternative does not exist that that it's not even an option. I guess, I mean, some of that zooming in like from a, a mechanism point of view is is, is quite valid in terms yes. of when you're looking at the bigger picture trying to explain things as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. If, especially, I mean, if you're, if you're a surgeon, if you're a neurosurgeon, it's all practice. Mm-hmm. And I don't want this person to do anything but do great, beautiful surgery. They did it in my back. And prior to that, for nine months, I couldn't walk. Three, three weeks late after the surgery, I was playing tennis in a tennis tournament. So that's that's part of it. But there should be an alternative look at things. Especially with chronic diseases of aging, because yeah. it's a very complex picture and you can't really treat it with a pill or with a knife. It's not something that's, you know, simple. And I think medical students and doctors are not trained to look from, you know, or have that bird's eye view to look at the entire spectrum of life, not just when the disease starts. Yeah, and that's so. where the, um, you know, the importance of epidemiology comes in. That's where the importance of prevention comes in. And unfortunately, it just doesn't exist in medical curriculum. I've heard, I mean, it's, it's kind of using an acute care model yeah. for chronic disease, right? Exactly. So you guys decided that you would take a different route mm. to your peers and, and what you were no doubt being advised and, and where did that take you? What happened next? Well, you know, it wasn't difficult because we had each other. If you're alone, it's scary. But we took a huge risk and um, we were in San Diego. And um, I think during those years, we started reading about the blue zones. Dan Butner had written his book and um, I remember reading about Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn's theories and his book and about the concept that nutrition can be an, a very you know profound way of reversing disease and preventing disease. And we heard about the, the Adventist Health Study. So we checked out where Loma Linda was and it happened to be just an hour east of where we lived. And that's how we pursued it. And you know we put in our applications. We had a few interviews and we got accepted. And I think that was probably one of the best decisions. And um, going in there, um, you know, I, I joined there as a resident. So I, I did a preventive medicine residency as well as a neurology residency. And Dean joined there as faculty and he created the memory and aging clinic. And, um, you know, when you live in Loma Linda, you have probably the most, uh, you know, the healthiest population around you. It's not uncommon to go to the gym early in the morning and see an 80 or a 90 year old lady with her dumbbells exercising or, you know, with people walking around without carrying any chronic diseases. 
and we got involved in research and uh, you know we we uh, we were both working in the memory and aging clinic and when you do you're expecting people to come in for for dementia and it was rare to have you know somebody from the adventist population coming in with dementia or with any brain diseases we saw over 5 years we saw 3000 dementia cases now this is a population loma linda the only blue zone in america and the only validated blue zone in the world where when you say validate meaning that a, a major study has actually looked at their numbers the admin cell study has been funded by nih yeah. over 50 years 100,000 people have been followed over, you know, over this 96,000 over all these years and well documented. And when we say followed up, it means that almost every year they fill out um, questionnaires about the kinds of food that they eat, how well they're involved in exercise, whether they are, you know, they're involved in their community. So we have, they have a lot of information which, which on wanna, how they live. I want to go into that because that's kind of like the... That's the way that high-fat keto yes. uh, folks will will say those studies are to be disregarded. They're right. inaccurate. Their food frequency, yes. but I think it's an important thing to at least talk about. It Absolutely. Is. Before we before you sort of carry on with where you were, I've had I had Dr. Renee Thomas on the show, and and she spoke about blue zones. But in case people haven't listened to that episode or read Dan Butner's book, let's just define, I guess, blue zones. What they are. What are these people known for? <laughs> So blue zones are places where pe people live longer and healthier than everybody else. And there are several of them. There's Okinawa, Japan. There's uh, Korea, uh, Greece. Uh, there is um, Sardinia, uh, Sardinia Italy. Italy. And then uh, we have um, uh, Loma Linda. And then in South America, we Nicosia, have Nicosia, Costa Rica. So these people live significantly longer and healthier than everybody else. One example of that is that in Loma Linda, the, um, the Seventh-day Adventists, within the Seventh-day Adventist study, live 10 to 14 years longer than everybody else. And the prevalence of diabetes is half. The prevalence of heart disease is significantly less. Even in 1993, when, when they studied dementia, the reason that's important the year, because remember that people didn't diagnose dementia that well. So their denominator was lower, which means the chances of underscoring was higher. Even in that population, the prevalence of those who were meat eaters or, or they were non-Seventh-day uh, Adventists or, was 50% more, or sorry, 100%, twice as much as those who weren't. I mean, the, this data is well studied. And speaking to that attack on epidemiology, Joe Rogan and others do this. And, 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 and there's a beautiful situation happening right now that, that that's an old technique that if you repeat something over and over again, it actually, you can associate it with what you want to associate it with. So now the association is that epidemiology is bad science, not knowing that even clinical trials fall under epidemiology. My PhD is in epidemiology, my master's. So it's, it is part of epidemiology. Epidemiology is not a thing that's separate from science. It's, it's a type of science. And as Walter Va uh, uh, Longo says, when, when it comes to lifestyle, you have to look at all the different kinds of studies and see the totality and the direction and the vector of all of them to say that this is the truth. Not some, uh, you know, we've done several review studies and uh, a couple of uh, meta-analyses, and we know how meta-analyses can be manipulated if somebody wanted to. So just looking at a couple of meta-analyses and say, this is science, or what they say, oh, this is new science. There's no new science and old science. You can't just label things and expect everybody to just follow you. Looking at epidemiology data, looking at population data, looking at cross-sectional data, looking at retrospective case control data, and looking at uh, randomized cl uh, clinical trials, 
and then meta-analyses all together, the totality, independent of each other. That's another thing. And not being funded by anybody. When all of them point to one direction, including the molecular studies that were done at NIH with our work, all of them pointing one direction. You can't just negate it and purge, you know, use a pejorative term to just negate all of that. So epidemiology is, is a valuable arm if it's not the totality. Yeah. So let's, let's carry on with Loma Linda. So yes. the, the incidence of dementia was much lower, mm-hmm. right? And you guys discovered that. Let's, can you top, top level, let's define dementia <laughs> and Alzheimer's sort of the, just differentiating between yeah. that. So dementia is the big umbrella category. Dementia, by definition, is when people are having difficulty with cognition to the extent where they can't do one of their daily activities. Two things have to be there as well. It it should be chronic. And secondly, uh, it it should not be related to something uh, that's immediate. You know, so if somebody has a sudden change in their cognition or it's called delirium, but if it persists, it's dementia. So whenever they have difficulty, that's dementia in general. There are many, many causes for dementia, from Lewy body disease, which Robin Williams suffered from, frontotemporal of dementia, vascular dementia, many others. But Alzheimer's is a subtype of dementia, but it constitutes nearly 70% of all dementia. And Alzheimer's is a degenerative one, where the cells and the axons start degenerating decades before the symptoms first manifest, decades. And then after a while, when it first manifests, you've had significant damage by that. So that's the Alzheimer's. And, and the area that's most profoundly affected in Alzheimer's is the temporal lobe and the parietal lobe. And those are the memory and cognition centers for, for yeah. Okay. Let's, let's go through the sort of etiology, the pathology, and, and how it plays out and what the risk factors are. Like why are certain people, for example, in Loma Linda population seem to be relatively protected or at less risk of developing these diseases compared to other people? I'll go over that data with, we are with Loma Linda, which is actually amazing. And Aisha can explain the pathology and physiology. We'll, we'll, but in Loma Linda, the 3,000 people that I saw over five years 50% of the population of Loma Linda is vegetarian. So by definition, if their people are going to get dementia, 50% of the people should be vegetarian. So out of the 3,000, 50% should be vegetarian. So after five years, 3,000 patients, guess how many people were vegetarian and higher edu- The education is another component. How, what, percent, what number of people do you think? It should have been 50. It should have been 1,500 people. Let's say 20%. No. 10%? No. We're going lower? Yes. 6%? No. We're talking about 19 total. 19 people, not 19%. 19 out of 3,000. Yes. So 19 of the 3,000 people that developed Correct. dementia Correct. were vegetarian. Correct. Now, I know uh, the first thing that people should challenge me by, by with saying that they should say that this is anecdotal data. It's a big anecdotal data. 3,000 people, the well-defined, the, you know, all of that. But still, and that's what we wrote in our book. Remember, the entire coconut oil revolution, billion-dollar business was based on an anecdote of one, 3,000 people. And then we, so anecdotal, but it's pretty strong anecdotal data, unless these people, so why is anecdotal is bad? Because could there be some other elements that could have led people who had dementia and Loma Linda to go to other places or not just get diagnosed at all? What are the several elements that make people not get diagnosed? One is lack of knowledge and lower education. The average education in Loma Linda, uh, uh, vegetarian and uh, Seventh-day Adventist population is 17 years, one of the highest in the world. That's not. Second thing is 
the center of religion of Seventh-day Adventist population is health. So health is well-known. So they're very health-oriented. So, so not many it. of them smoke or drink alcohol, right? No, exactly. So all that was taken into consideration. Now, the other element of this is that could they selectively have gone somewhere else? Why would they not go to their own institution and travel two hours somewhere else? And why would that be disproportionate? Why? And to this degree of disproportionality. Mm. So then we looked at the data, the Seventh-day Adventist population, and the database itself, which is very well circumscribed, defined. And there's a, there's a component where 500 people were followed over three years looking at vegan, lacto-ovo, pescatarian, and omnivores, and looking at cognitive testing. So the cognitive testing was done. And again, it fell, guess how? Stepwise. Vegans did better than lacto-ovos, which did better than uh, pescatarians, which did better than omnivores. Is, this, is that the 90, 1993 study? No, this is the study that we've done. No, that this will is be... the recent one. Correct. Okay, so this is going to be published this year, next year? Hopefully this year, okay. this year. So this is, so that corroborated. That. So we're hearing the findings now. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Here we go. So it, it's remarkable that we have this kind of data, yet you can't just push it off by saying it's epidemiology. We have cross-sectional, we have anecdotal, but 3,000 anecdotal. And then, and then Aisha was in Columbia University and they've, they've done studies in California teachers study and, and others prospectively that have shown the same thing again and again and again. So the, that's the story of Loma Linda. The, the population in Loma Linda um, or the, the, the studies that, that are done within the Adventist Health Study have repeatedly shown that the mechanisms that deal underlying, uh, underlying all these chronic diseases are pretty much the same. Why is it more significant to focus on the brain is because the brain is the hungriest organ in the body. This little three-pound organ, which is 2% of your body's weight, consumes 25% of your body's energy. So by definition, it will, it's the same mechanism, the same Krebs cycle, the same all these biomechanical mechanisms that you know of, uh, but it's being overrun. It's being overwhelmed. It's supposed to live 30 years. Uh, you know, we are not expected. So when these paleo people bring the example of paleo, really, we were supposed to live 30 years. And now you're bringing chronic disease into this formula. You know, we were supposed to, you know, run away from tigers, mate, reproduce, and die. Not always in that order, but, you know, we did it. Then the average age was, what was the the, the, the average anywhere between 15 to 30 years right. of age? Yeah, about, you know, um, people only made it beyond age 15, like, 47% of the population made it beyond age 15. And the, the, the average age was essentially somewhere between 27 to 37. So, so people, most of the people died in their mid-30s. Long enough to sort of procreate. Procreate, exactly. yes. And then now we're using that as a model for chronic disease? Really? I mean, where's the logic in that? Um, so we, we're, now we're living long and long, 70, 80. And that's fantastic. I love it. But the brain is being overwhelmed. Remember that it's, it's the organ that continually, continually works, even at night. In fact, the best work it does is at night. The cleansing that it does is at night. So, of course, if you, if you traumatize it through lifestyle, which is the biggest trauma, you're going to affect it. Eventually, it's going to catch up. That's the whole underlying mechanism. Yeah. So, so take me through a little bit more this study that you guys are publishing. Uh, there was a, a paper, you probably saw it, came out, I think it was like a month ago, another one from the Adventist data. Mm -hmm. 
and it looked at it was looking at red red and processed meat. Did mm-hmm. you see that paper? Yes. And I think the omnivores in that study, the ones that were eating meat, it was only around forty nine grams of meat a day, right? Yes. So even the omnivores in that study are <laughs> consuming far less animal products than this sort of standard American, yeah. right? Yet they still found significant differences. What 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 did you find in your study, and how many years is that data taken from? Uh, the same thing, same because it's the same population. Same database. It, it, it's it's mined from the same. It's a subset of that same population. And and remember, whenever people do studies, they compare. So when they compare fish, they say fish is good for you. Well, they're comparing it to meat. So comparison matters. In this case, even though we're seeing the omnivores living shorter and unhealthier, the omnivores in Seventh Day Adventist population are actually probably the healthiest people in America. Yet still, even in among that, that population, when you compare them to the lactovans and vegans, they are way worse off. So that's the comparison we're talking about. And and in the general population, it's much worse. Let me give you the you remember when we went to the churches in San Bernardino? Yes, yes. Community? Yeah. Absolutely. You know, when, when you get out of Loma Linda, so so you know, just across one highway um in San Bernardino County where we work, you get to see one of the the unhealthiest population there. Um we work in a community clinic in San Bernardino and it's not uncommon to see, you know, people in their 40s and 50s starting to have cognitive impairment. I mean, I, I, I'm i a stroke specialist and, you know, it's very common to see someone who's in their 30s coming in with lifestyle diseases like diabetes, high blood pressure and high cholesterol and, you know, having strokes. And when we go there for community talks, we go to a lot of churches to kind of, you know, talk about brain health and how important it is to start thinking about prevention we see individuals in their 60s coming in and, you know, when you're a neurologist, you detect disease very easily because you see it so often. We're not very fun in parties. <laughs> we see it and they have the slowing. They have the slowing of their thinking, uh, the processing, even in their language and walking. And you can tell that that individual yeah. has signs and symptoms of vascular dementia where, you know, say, for example, the high blood pressure or the cholesterol or the diabetes has been there long enough to have damaged the arteries that supply the, the thousands and thousands of arteries that supply necessary nutrients and oxygen to the brain. So it's just incredible how much you actually tend to see that in the community as well. And it's only five miles away. Yeah. from You have the healthiest place in the world here, Loma Linda, the Seventh-day Adventist, and then across and you have the one one of the unhealthiest in America. Obviously, it doesn't have to do anything with race. It doesn't have to do anything with genetics. It's lifestyle. Yeah, and it, it doesn't have to do with uh, we're in Loma Linda. The the air quality is not that great. It hasn't affected the Seventh Day Adventists at all. In fact, it's one of the worst health uh, air qualities because of the, it's a valley. Wow. Valley, so that all the pollution from LA comes to San Bernardino and settles settles there. Yet it hasn't. But in San Bernardino, five miles away, same same location, pretty much. The prevalence of cognitive decline and dementia is overwhelming, mm-hmm. and it's all lifestyle. Okay, so we're, we're we're talking about populations right next to each other with significantly different disease mm-hmm. risk, neurological disease risk. You mentioned vascular changes. Let's go through the pathology. What's happening? What what in their lifestyle is causing these changes at a cellular level, and what exactly are the changes? So I'll talk about the vascular uh, risk factors and vascular health. 
you hear so many people talking about the brain is made out of fat and you know fat 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 and you get to hear that over and over again that, that was one of my uh topics to go over today <laughs> we're gonna <laughs> but one of the biggest things that people don't realize is that the brain is the most vascular organ in the body if you had to spread out the arteries or the vessels that supply oxygen and nutrition to the brain it would be about 400 miles so think about these arteries that are as thin as your hair or thinner or thinner and you know like millions of them when somebody lives an unhealthy life say for example when they're not caring for what they eat or they don't exercise or they don't sleep or they're under a tremendous amount of stress what happens is you get processes like inflammation and oxidation and dysregulation of energy and fat causing damage to to the arteries and this causes damage to the infrastructure and the brain is essentially starved of all the necessary nutrients and so you know there are specific parts of the brain that are more susceptible than others the hippocampus which are the areas of the brain that are responsible for memory and coding it's a very very sensitive part of the brain and it's you know it it senses changes in oxygenation and inflammation and oxidation and that's the part that is hit and that's how people actually have a difficult time processing memories encoding memories or being very fast when it comes to decision making or planning and you know, overall, when, when we see, what well, we see thousands and thousands of people coming in with, with MRIs, we get MRIs or, you know, brain imaging to find out if there's any structural damage or vascular damage. And there's a term called white matter disease. And you see these individuals with lots of white matter disease. Why? Because they have had high blood pressure. Why? Because they've had very unhealthy diets that were high in saturated fats, high in salt. And over time, that actually destroyed the, the 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 very connections between the cells, and if it's not addressed right away, that can lead to strokes, that can lead to dementias, and so many other brain diseases too. A, a lot of what you're describing seems like there's a lot of overlap with heart disease. Yes. Do you see that clinically? Of a lot course. of these, yeah. Of course. I mean, you know, the the body is a closed system, and for a very long time, people thought that the brain was this separate organ that completely you know, functioned under um, separate processes, but it, it doesn't. It's the same as your heart. It's the same as your kidney. The same way that the arteries of the heart, uh, it gets clogged. The same thing happens in the brain as well, even more, because the brain is so energy hungry and it always consumes and consumes more energy. It requires more. So any small damage to the vessels actually <clears throat> cause a, a, a magnified problem. And, and Unlike heart disease, you know, we've got some signs from like the likes of Dr. Dean Ornish and Esselstein where they've shown through lifestyle modification in some circumstances they've been able to reverse the vascular damage. Is My understanding is that you can't reverse dementia and Alzheimer's. Am, am I correct in saying that or can you actually get some reversal of damage? I'm, I'm glad you're asking this question because there are a lot of people out there who are just making a lot of money off of the concept that you can reverse Alzheimer's disease. And I want to be clear here that you cannot reverse Alzheimer's disease. When dementia has set in and it's advanced enough where by the time it manifests, a large portion of the brain has already been damaged. And there's no way you can reverse that. But if it's in its earlier phases, like mild cognitive impairment, and if you implement healthy lifestyle, then you can reverse some of the damage that has been done. 
a lot of people are claim making these, not a lot, but, but some people are making these claims and making lots of money off the vitamins and these concoctions. And, and the reason we're actually emphasizing this because the, when a person starts having memory problems, they're, they're desperate mm-hmm. and they'll spend anything. And these cynical people know this and they rob them for every, I mean, their, their patients come to us. And by the time they're, they, they're coming to me, 30,000, $40,000 of money spent and no results. Initially, of course, anytime you invest, you become the biggest proponent of that because you feel like, but it, it's overwhelming. But the important thing is that majority of those who develop memory problems or even mild cognitive impairment, which is pre-dementia, which is in the millions, they can be affected. The important thing is that if we all, even in younger age, start instituting just even minimal changes in lifestyle, we can re- significantly, re- let me give you an idea. If we can mo- push Alzheimer's back five years, the cost that I was quoting before will be d- demolished, will be a fraction of that by the time we push it just five years. And that's what we're hoping to do. An incremental change can be made. Aisha did one of the biggest studies in the country, that California teacher study when she was in Columbia. She won the American Heart Association Research Award for that. And I will, I'll let you speak about it. I, I just set you up. <laughs> you, you won the award. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> he always brags about me. Um, That's great. But I think it, it was really exciting because it's one of, it was one of its kind study where, um, you know, you see this population that has been studied for over 25 years and you have a lot of information from them. So you get a lot of questionnaires. They, they filled out five questionnaires. So we had a lot of data on them. And I wanted to look at stroke because, you know, there's a big correlation between Alzheimer's disease and vascular diseases of the brain now. But, you know, we've tried to focus on stroke and the next uh, set of analysis is on Alzheimer's disease. And I wanted to look at diet because, you know, everybody talks about the Mediterranean diet and it's just a really hot topic. And I was intrigued by it. I wanted to know what was the Mediterranean diet. What did it what was it made of? You know, what does it mean for somebody in San Bernardino County eating a Mediterranean diet? You know, that structure and that uh, calculation has been used in all of the studies around the world. So whenever you hear the Mediterranean diet, there is a particular way of scoring the diet, dietary patterns. And just to set it up a little more, you remember that when they do these studies, it's not just done in Mediterranean. It's, or whatever that is, because even that's a question. Where is it? Is it, you know, um, uh, Italy? Is it Greece? Greece? Is it Israel? Is it, where is it? Mm. It's actually, when they, when they do these studies, they, they do it throughout the world, but they call it Mediterranean diet. So what does that mean? Is it the wine, cheese, olives, music? What is it? <laughs> the way they define it is how Aisha found out that, oh, how they're looking at Mediterranean diet is the same everywhere. And it's defined by... Yeah, so you you basically get scored. You get a high score if you eat fruits, vegetables, whole grain, legumes and lentils, nuts and seeds, and sources of omega-3 fatty acids. It doesn't necessarily have to be fish because when we analyzed the California teacher study, almost everybody ate, uh, you know, nuts and seeds. And we also looked at fats. You know, people think that everybody's guzzling down olive oil on Mediterranean diet, but these people didn't. They actually didn't even know back then in the 1990s of whether they should use olive oil or not. So we calculated the amount of polyunsaturated fat in their diet. So that was the high score. For vegetables, essentially the plant-based components and sources of omega-3 fatty acids and polyunsaturated fats. You get a low score if you consume meat, 
poultry, dairy, and high-fat dairy. So essentially, you're getting you're getting a dietary pattern that that's essentially plants, and it's, it's whole and so it's processed. I mean, overall, were they consuming much total fat? No, they weren't. They weren't. They actually, we actually. So if you had to label somebody adhering fully to a Mediterranean diet, they would be eating mostly plants and they would have relatively high sources of omega-3 fatty acids from nuts and seeds. The way, um, so of course, in any large study like that, people fall across the spectrum to totally unhealthy. And so, Mm -hmm. so what they did was given that definition, whole food plant, they created a spectrum of nine levels. So the highest adherence, meaning level nine, which was all plants, no meats, they actually lowered their chance of stroke by 44%. And this was adjusted for all other lifestyle risk factors. Because when you you hear a crazy number like that, you think, well, I'm pretty sure they were highly educated. They had a lot of money, so they exercised quite often and they lived in good areas. But even for after adjusting for exercise levels, for hormone intake in these women, for their socioeconomic status, their education status, they were highly educated, almost all of them. Even after that, there was, you know, the, the, the risk of stroke was reduced by 44%. For, for, for the listeners who may not be familiar with the term adjusting, what does that mean? So adjusting means it's a statistical process where you take into consideration things that could confound the picture, that could, you know, m- maybe show that diet was not as, as important as it actually seems to be. Uh, one of the things that they have problem with epidemiological data is that they're saying that, yeah, you might see an association, but there's another relationship behind the scene that might be accounting for that mm-hmm. and not the thing that you're looking at. Yeah. Like perhaps the vegetarians exercised more. Correct. Right. Or they were higher education, uh, higher uh, because education seems to have a strong correlation for all health. Or they were more socially involved. Or, or looking at their weights and BMIs, body mass indices. Correct. But when you, when you have large data, you actually do statistical analysis that takes all of that into consideration. And when you take all of that consideration and still it was the, the diet was the dominant factor and it was the whole food plant-based component. And what Aisha found, and I'm, I, of course I worked with them, I'm, I was part of every step, positive step towards or in the direction of the optimal diet actually gave you benefit. So it's not all or none. So every little step actually helped. And I think that's such an important news for everybody to understand that every small change they can make in their diet matters. Every step towards a mostly plant-based diet actually reduces the risk of disease, in this case, stroke. And that brings us to sort of drilling down on what nutrition, what healthy nutrition looks like for, for brain health in particular. But as you said, a lot of this is overlapping with so many other diseases as well. So let's go through that nutrition, foods that improve brain health and versus those that negatively affect brain health. I think it would be important to also touch on like there are a couple of studies that high fat proponents will point to. I think there was like a 2013 Mayo Clinic study. I'm not sure if you're aware of that, which which the conclusion was that the, those who had high saturated fat diets had reduced risk of dementia. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but if you've seen similar studies, like how is this, there's certain studies that show the opposite. So now this is where the confound comes, comes in. And this is where the meta-analysis trick takes place, where 
a meta-analysis where you do is you take all the data from other researchers that have done the research and you put it together and then you run it through statistical analysis, be it logistic regression or whatever. But the outcome depends on what elements you're accounting for. So if you take out cholesterol out of your formula, you're going to get a completely different result than if you put it in. If you take out, so the confounds that you put into the your formula determine the outcome. So some of the meta-analyses that are coming out suffer from that. Obviously not the Mayo Clinic. So you're saying like if you control for cholesterol because it's so tightly associated with saturated fat, correct? it essentially takes saturated fat out of the question. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, a lot of times you, they say that if you control for something ahead of time, you've just taken it out of the formula. So how could you take cholesterol out of the formula? So a lot of these meta-analyses suffer from that. In fact, one of them was just challenged and they reversed their position. I think we read that together. Yes. The, the second thing is there is a time period fa- factor. A lot of things that are helpful early on in your midlife, actually you see different factor later on. That's called a survival phenomenon. And that means um, survival bias. So if you lived long enough past your chronic disease, to old age, then what determines if you're okay is if you don't fall, you don't break bones. And what determines those things is a little weight. So whereas midlife obesity or even being overweight was extremely bad as far as cognition, late life was associated with survival and better cognition. Why? Because by now you've lived that long and you've lived past. And if you don't fall and you don't have head trauma, which is, a, and, and if you're older and if you have a brain, any little bit of head trauma has caught, then that is a different variable than what happened in midlife, which is a true indicator of fat relationship and, and a relationship with brain health, fat's relation with chronic disease, fat's relation with insulin resistance, because midlife is looking at the true relationship. Later life is looking at survival bias. So which, and survival bias has nothing to do with the chronic disease itself. It has to do with the fact that this person has survived and now they have some more, you know, they, they are not frail. Frailty is the number one factor as far as the mortality as you get older. And having a little more weight on your body actually prevents frailty catching up. Literally, that, that you see this, uh, this dichotomy between midlife factors showing one thing and late life factors showing another thing over and over and over again. So all people have to do is account for survival bias. Account for that. Okay, so why wouldn't a study do it? It has to be large enough. It has to be large enough in order to, sorry, not to get too wonky here and technical, in order to account for enough variables, population has to be large enough for you to, be do, the, to do the statistics. And if it's not, then you can't account for all those little statistics. Thousands and thousands of papers are coming out each year with little studies of 100 people, 200 people, when you have 100, 200, 300, 400 pe- people in a study, there's no way you can account for everything. And if you haven't accounted for one of the big things like survival bias and all these, then it's meaningless. All you did was create a correlation and not account for the thing that really caused that effect. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. That was, that was beautifully explained. So what is it then in, in the diets of people that are at more risk, right? Is it the saturated fat in their diet? Is it the cholesterol? What is What, what actually is it? And, and where does the science lie to sort of explain that? The answer is E. All of the above. That's, that's in high school. <laughs> yes, yes. If you don't know the answer, put E. So, um, 
so we 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 talk about four pathways. We wrote this a while ago, and now it's becoming popular. Dean Ornish and others That's are saying right. uh, the common. Uh, uh, it's the four pathways that we we talked about, which is an, uh, energy dysregulation, a lipid or fat dysregulation, inflammation, and oxidation. Now they're not independent. This is a closed system, and all of them are interrelated. But sometimes one of the processes push the disease process first. Other times, others, for example, I, we're working with uh, football players and uh, athletes and traumatic brain injury. The pathway, the initial pathway is usually inflammation. Repeat, repeat, repeat trauma, inflammation that's not over, overwhelms the body's ability to respond to inflammation. And then when it's overwhelmed, then the other processes start. So, and in fact, one of the studies we were doing is looking at neuroinflammation, which is very cool. One of the f- new tools that you can actually see neuroinflammation in the brain. So the, the TBI increases one's risk of developing oh, dementia absolutely. And, and Alzheimer's? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes, absolutely. Others come to it from insulin resistance and glucose dysregulation or, or energy dysregulation. And the keto story here is pretty cute. But, but uh, So energy dysregulation is another pathway. So for a while, the Harvard people would say, oh, um, um, it, it's a type three diabetes. Type, well, for some it is. And we did the biggest study, then uh, the California, the um, uh, NHANES, uh, na- um, the nationwide data. We looked at people who, we excluded that diabetics and just looked at pre-diabetics. So pre-diabetics. And again, there was lower cognition. So even pre-diabetes affected cognition, which puts you at risk for dementia. So is, is this a result of insulin resistance. Correct. That's yeah. correct. correct. Which is a very common pathway. The other one is, which we think is a big, is fat or fat metabolism. In fact, the gene- when you look at the genetics of Alzheimer's and dementia, we now have these methods where you can actually see which genes are involved in Alzheimer's and to what extent. The fat metabolism component is a big one. So if you don't have good fat metabolism or ability to metabolize fat or process fat, that's a pathway, which then goes to inflammation. No, now fat affects insulin resistance more than sugar. So these these people who are trying to, you know, they, they, I had the guys on from Mastering Diabetes recently. Oh, that's right, they, Robin they, Cyrus. Yeah, they they went right into the science behind fat and intramyosin yes. lipids. And- yes. Oh yeah, yeah, we were actually writing about the uh, review on this. It affects your insulin resistance more than sugar. So everybody focuses on sugar. It's not, it's the fat that, and then it also affects inflammation, profound amount of inflammation and even amyloid deposition, which is the bad protein in Alzheimer's. So you can come to it from different directions, but these are the four processes. So tell me what, what percentage overall would be a genetic predisposition? Three. 3%. Well, let me, let me preface. All diseases are hundred percent genetic, including you getting into it. Well, not you, but. Including epigenetics. Getting into a, including epigenetics, including getting into, getting into a car accident. Your reflexes were de- determined by your genetics. Your eyesight was determined by your genetics. By in that sense, genetics. But what diseases are pushed heavily by genes, such as Huntington's disease? If you have Huntington's gene disease, which is chromosome four, this one locus where there's CAG repeats, you're going to get the disease. You can't do much about it. You're going to get it and your son if they have more than 40 repeats, they're going to get it. That's a genetically driven disease. That kind of a genetic model for Alzheimer's is in only 3%. Presenelin 1, presenelin 2, and APP. And we've done the study on APP, which Amyloid is going to- precursor protein. Yeah, which is going to be published. That even in that model, when you controlled for blood pressure, cholesterol, and diabetes, guess what happened? 
you push the disease back. So individuals with Down syndrome have um, an extra copy of APP or amyloid precursor protein. And when Down syndrome kids, they grew up, most of them start developing a cognitive impairment and the diagnosis or have the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease in their 40s and 50s. So that's a very strong genetic model for Alzheimer's disease. And our study showed that if those individuals lived a healthier life, if they were not overweight, and if their diabetes and cholesterol were under control, they actually pushed the disease wow. significantly. But the other 90 to 97% is polygenetic. One of the genes that is stronger, which is APOE4. APOE4 is a gene that codes for a lipid transporter, fat transport. And if you have one gene from one parent, your risk goes up four times. If you have two genes from each parent, your risk goes up anywhere between 12 and higher percent at times. So that's pretty. So you would think that people who have two genes, they all get Alzheimer's, right? No, 50% don't. Why? Lifestyle. The Nigerian study where the population has higher prevalence of uh, APOE4. They had lower Alzheimer's when early on, but then when they came to America, higher risk. Why? Same genes, same lifestyle. So, and then the other genes are, what are the, they're not Alzheimer's genes. Usually you don't have a disease gene when you're polygenetic. It's your body's ability to get rid of waste, genes for that. Your body's ability to uh, regulate immune system, immune response, your body's ability to, uh, you know, uh, have um, a vascular response. So what does that mean? That means that if you have a bad gene or bad genes for immune response, you're going to get overwhelmed faster. So don't do things that Increases inflammation. What's the number one cause of chronic inflammation? Food. Yeah. Food. What's the number one thing that can get rid of inflammation? Food. That's the secret. And it's and and for brain even more, because it's 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 overwhelmed. It's very susceptible because of its energy utilization. But once we get to it, there's also hope because the most resilient organ in the body is the brain by far. So talk to me about, because I think, you know, I'm sure plenty of the listeners have come across sort of healthy brain foods and healthy brain diets and things like fish oil come up or you hear people saying you need to eat dietary cholesterol because you need it for, as a precursor to synthesize vitamin D, which is important for the brain. I know saturated fat is a non-essential fat, but we hear saturated fat is good for the brain. Where do these ideas, where are they coming from? To the best of our knowledge today. And then Dean, Dean and I always love that phrase because that actually shows the true humility of science. You know, you have to back up every statement with evidence. There really is no evidence that cholesterol and saturated fat is good for the brain. We don't know where they come up with these statements from. In well, fact, we the kinda, opposite. Yes, we kind of have an idea why they say so. But when you look at the data from, you know, like 85 plus years of data, every large population study, even molecular studies and animal studies that we don't really believe in, in a lot of the animal studies. But when you look at the different forms of studies that come back over and over again, it shows that diets that are high in saturated fats, they're actually harmful for the brain. I mean, you pick any study, I'll name one, 1993 in Loma Linda, Dr. Paul Guillaume showed that among Adventists, people who consumed meat, including fish and poultry, had a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease, almost twice the risk of developing Alzheimer's disease compared to those who are vegetarians or vegans. The Kaiser Permanent in Northern California study, 9,900 individuals followed for many years. 
and they measured their consumption of uh, saturated fats during their midlife. And they showed that people who consumed higher amount of uh, saturated fats, they had about 57% higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And people who had even a moderately high levels of cholesterol during their midlife, even they had a 23% higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And then you look at the studies coming from Rush University in Chicago, Dr. Martha Morris, you know, looking at different dietary patterns, Mediterranean, the MIND diet, which is a hybrid of the Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet or dietary approach to stop hypertension. It's lower in salt. And even that diet, when people consumed that, they had a lower risk of developing Alzheimer's disease by 53%. And even moderately adhering to the diet will reduce it. What medication do we have that does that? What process do we have that does that? Diet is extremely important. And we know that those diets are very low in saturated fats and animal products. The, 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 the Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet, that, that tends to be the diet recommended by most sort of dementia, Alzheimer's associations, right? Yes. Yes. And, and the reason is because it's sexy and it's politically benign. And it appears that we are driven now all by politics. The, as, as Aisha said, Mediterranean diet or the highest adherence to Mediterranean diet that's shown to be beneficial for any disease is the plant-based component. Not the olive oil, not the cheese, not, none of that stuff. It's the plant uh, component. So um, uh, so you were talking about why do you think these, this, this, this other world, where yeah. are they coming from? Well, at the beginning, at, at the bigger level, it's a confirmation bias. It's, it's men. I'm going to be controversial. <laughs> so... Men want to protect their bacon. They want to protect their meat. And one of the biggest problems in humanity is confirmation bias. And education doesn't get rid of confirmation bias. It just gives you better language to confirm your bias. So that's a problem. And, and, and it's easy to manipulate words here and there and resist. And, but, but facts are going to manifest eventually, truthfully. The second place it comes from is this kind of studies. The only studies that have been repeatedly shown this, these relations are smaller studies where you can you don't account for confound, and there therefore you see an alternative result. And some of them have already been challenged by Walter Willett and, and Harvard and others. They said, no, this is not how you look at it. It's another way. So so that's one way. The second wave of studies that are coming out is the meta analyses. And as I said, you have to be very careful with meta analyses. Because you have to first find out who funds it, because that determines what variables go into the formula. And what goes into the garbage in, garbage out. Meta-analysis is exactly that. Garbage variables, not enough variables, not enough accountability for all the elements of the formula on the right side, you will get garbage out on the left side of the formula. That's where the problem is. But behind the scene is this resistance to change. And it's so funny, the... the the, the argument on the other side is that, oh, that's all this other science is old science. And what we're doing is the new science. Reality is it's actually the opposite. It's resistance to change. It's resistant to the fact that we have to go plant-based if we want to get rid of, or not to be bombastic, to reduce the effect of chronic disease. Mm. And I mean, a number of those meta-analysis that you're talking to, look, go back and look at old studies. Yes. They're not all they're all new studies. It's a new analysis of data. Exactly. So that's just a new interpretation. Mm -hmm. It's looking at old data most yes. of the time, right? Yeah. And it's an interesting point that you make because there's this school of thought that randomized controlled trials and meta-analysis are 
higher in the hierarchy of quality, but it really comes down to how it's constructed. Exactly. Right. It, it's all construction. Absolutely. You can get any result you want. In fact, what I loved about working at Loma Linda is as a scientist, you start with novel hypotheses, meaning you start with rejecting your hypotheses and you, you go out, if you're a really honest scientist, there, by actually trying to reject your hypothesis. I mean, that's what he uh, um, uh, called Popper um, kind of a thing where you have to start with the negative. And, and, and then what you do is you create your analysis as complete as possible ahead of time. And you say that whatever result I get at the end is it. That's it. I can't go back and fish again. Fishing experiment. But almost everybody does fishing experiment, meaning that they run it. They don't get the result. They throw another variable, another third variable until they get the result. And that's the problem. Or change the outcome that they're measuring. Right. Exactly. Exactly. The, the p-value or something else or the, the outcome analysis. It makes it tricky, right, for, for everyday people who don't have, A, the time or are not trained yeah. to interpret science, right? Yes. It's, it's, it's a very, very difficult time because we have people manipulating concepts, let alone science, and then the language. And then something, I mean, we have at this point, we have people writing books that uh, add, um, you know, fat to your coffee. I mean, based on what? And they have more followers, more sales, more people believing in that than 80 years of well-founded, mm. systematic, multi-level research, thousands. Uh, we're, we're, in a, we're, we're in a tough battle. That but- must be, in, I mean, from, from your position and, and looking at understanding the science at the level that you guys do and for the number of years that you've been working on it, that must be incredibly frustrating. It is very frustrating because we see it every single day in the clinic, in the hospital. I work in the emergency room. I see what it does to people and we see it at the clinic and at the communities. Yeah. When you go there and you find out that, you know, even individuals who think that they're actually doing a very good job as far as their health is concerned and staying away from, you know, processed foods and exercising, there's just so much noise out there that people get damaged because of all the the flawed signs. Okay. I want to quickly sort of summarize, I guess, while we're drilling in on nutrients, I, I want to move to food because particularly for the listeners Talking about food is a lot more practical than drilling yes. on the nutrients, yes. but of course it is. It's it's nice to sort of understand some of these things. The unsaturated fat and the polyunsaturated fats that you were talking about before, and, and people that were consuming more of those and less saturated fat who were doing better, mm-hmm. right? Is it the removal of the saturated fat, or is it these omega threes that have a particularly special role in the brain? What is the role of fat in the brain, and what are the important? What is the importance of dietary fat for brain health? So dietary fats are important for brain health, but it's it's actually a problem of quantity and quality that is causing the disease. The brain does have you know structures that are made of fat, and we need that raw material for the integrity of the brain. But it's when we consume too much of it and the wrong type of it. So saturated fats actually cause inflammation at the vascular level. And when people tend to have the genes or say the ApoE4 genes that um, doesn't really transport cholesterol and fat across the cell, doesn't actually do a very good job at metabolizing it properly, that's when problems set in. As a matter of fact, we were reading some articles that came out just a couple of weeks ago where people who have Alzheimer's disease actually have abnormalities of fat 
and cholesterol removal from the cells. And you get to see my cells or, you know, particles of cholesterol just stuck in there and the brain is not able to remove it. So we're learning more and more about it. But, you know, just because parts of the brain is made of fat doesn't necessarily mean we have to just guzzle down fat. You know, we get enough fat from our food. We get enough fat from an unprocessed plant-based diet and the body itself actually produces cholesterol and that's enough. And on the other hand, we see the damage that cholesterol and saturated fats cause at the vascular level. Sometimes it's difficult to understand that the way food and nutrients get to the brain is through these very, very sensitive arteries. And if these arteries are damaged, the inner lining and the endothelium of these arteries are damaged because of saturated fats, forget about getting nutrition to the brain. Yeah, it's it's uh, you said it beautifully. I mean, th- this is uh, the battleground about a fat is 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 not much of a battleground. Brain gets enough fat. Yeah, we might actually give some omega threes, and you know, the the Adventist Health study just came out that actually vegans had more omega three levels than omnivores, and that was actually even to me that was a shock. Uh, you would think that because they eat egg and this and but no, we have enough in your chia and your flaxseed and all these things, mm-hmm. plenty to, to to for your brain and some nuts here and there. So if there is omega need for omega for several reasons, omega three, omega six pathway we all know is needed in the body, but the omega six pathway is more inflammatory and coagulation, which is needed. You you don't coagulate, you bleed. And omega three is the opposite direction. I'm simplifying, but that's basically it. And as we get older, we want to. Uh, switch that pathway a little bit. but and, and even in the young, you want, especially very young, you want some omega-3 DHA for building of the, of the anti-inflammatory as well as building the brain. You do need that. But you get plenty of that in, in the body. Our kids have been um, uh, vegan and plant-based all, all their life. And do they get that mainly from, from whole foods or do they supplement like a DHA, EPA, algae oil supplement? And the second part of that question is, are... Uh, fish oil, uh, you know, we see fish oil tablets, you know, it's a huge industry. Uh, those are helpful. Is there any science behind them? And what about, you know, vegetable oils? I'm starting from our kids. Um, we eat a plant-based diet, but, it, you know, as children, it's not always perfect. And you want to have a varied diet, which includes a lot of nuts and seeds and sources of omega-3 fatty acids. So just to be on the safe side, we actually supplement. We take an algae-based omega-3 fatty acids on a regular basis. The studies that have come out from fish oil actually hasn't really shown any benefits for for brain health. Um, most of the clinical trials that have come out have been inconsistent, but we do know that omega-3 fatty acids is important for the brain. And um, because people live very you know busy lives and they don't get to have a perfect diet, I think it's important for them to supplement with omega-3 fatty acids. Most people want absolute facts. We don't have the absolute facts here when it comes to children. We know that there's some correlation with kids that have taken omega DHA for in brain health. The quantity we know a little bit, but beyond that, the data is not completely there. And 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 my favorite thing is never to extrapolate beyond the data. Mm-hmm. Don't speak beyond what the data shows. So at the moment, it's a bit of an insurance policy. Yeah, it is an insurance policy, and we take it. Yes, and and as far as fish oil, we're incredulous about it because none of these supplements are overseen by FDA. They're not regulated anything. So with fish and mercury and lead and uh, uh, PCBs. All the chemicals that we dump in the ocean. Since 1940s, we've dumped more than 40,000 chemicals in the oceans and we check for how many? Two. 
So we 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 kind of vie towards yeah, and the, you can get the the DHA EPA algae oil from like a farmed source, so it's not coming from the ocean. Correct, correct, exactly. So so we just as an insurance, and also as an insurance, we we do B twelve as well, just in case. Although the data shows that if you don't have B twelve deficiency, there's no need to to do anything else. Beyond that, for both adults and children. The data is non-existent. Okay. Is there is there any data in terms of a certain nutrient deficiency which would predispose someone yes. to Alzheimer's dementia? A lot. A lot. So if you have B12 deficiency, in fact, this is known. People who have B12 deficiency, they have neuropathy, they have cognitive deficits, they even get dementia. So all of that's been known with a B12 deficiency. Not just B12 deficiency in the blood. So you could have a lot of B12 in your body, but your body's not utilizing it. So that's why methylmalonic acid and, and all that. So Is that, if you have one, like a genetic mutation? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Or you're not absorbing it well. And uh, that's, yeah. The other thing is vitamin D is a new one, which is the association is fairly strong. Data has to be better elucidated, but vitamin D deficiency and its correlation with MS, vitamin D deficiency and its correlation with axonal connections, and as well as myelin formation, as well as neuronal health has been shown. But if you have vitamin D deficiency, absolutely, there's a correlation with brain health or lack thereof. And, and most vitamin D, even if you're an omnivore, is coming from the sun, right? Like 80% or so. Right. Exactly. So if it, it, your recommendation, if someone's not getting sun, is to have a vitamin D supplement? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Deficiency states are completely different. If you're deficient, at least until you know how to get your, your vitamins from your food, which is a better way, that's a whole different conversation as far as how your body actually understands the synergy of vitamins more important than, than pill form alone. Uh, we just published in our social media uh, um, a whole study that showed that people who took pills did worse than people who didn't take pills and uh, versus people who actually got it from their food. So food form is important. So everybody should become a nutritionist and learn how to get food from, and not just, you know, if you just eat carrots, you're going to die. So a more- Abundance, variety. diversity. Abundance, abundance and diversity, right. exactly. Right. So that's important. The other thing that's a deficiency is B1, you know, uh, thiamine deficiency, mm-hmm. people, you know, Wernicke's Korsakoff, which is a dementia that alcoholics develop. But even beyond alcoholics, it's the fact that the thiamine is low. So when you have low thiamine levels, you have eye abnormalities as well as uh, cognitive decline in dementia. So yeah, if you have a deficiency state, any of the B vitamins and D vitamin, you're going to have cognitive dif- difficulties. That's why one of the things we say is check your levels and then supplement and then start learning about nutrition so you can switch from supplement to food because food is the best way to get your vitamins. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point that you made about people taking more pills, having poor outcomes, probably because they just become reliant on it and then they they don't think they need the diversity yes. in their diet and the abundance anymore. Yeah, exactly. You know? exactly. Let's go down now to the food level. When your patients do present to you, how do you... How do you sort of explain to them in a digestible manner how you would like to see them eat and and how you would like to see them make if small changes or transitions? So it's every everything is personalized. You know, you try to listen to them, find out who they are, listen to their story and see what works for them. The cookie cutter approach of just do what I tell you to do and here's a booklet and just follow it doesn't really work with most people. That's probably why behavior change hasn't hasn't worked. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, from a very neuroscientific perspective too, you know, if you create small increments of success for people, that in itself is the biggest drug towards a habit. So finding out that small increment 
spending a lot of time knowing what that is and having them choose that step is the most important thing. And that's what we spend most of our time with. So for example, if somebody comes in with raging insulin resistance about to you know, have dementia, we actually find, them, find out what they eat. And then we say, what is it that you can do today? Understanding the importance of diet. What is it that you can do today that will stick to you for the next week or so? And then they choose that. And then we basically show them with objective evidence, whether it's their glucose tolerance, whether it's their insulin markers or fasting, whatever it may be, or C-reactive protein, whatever it may be, what a great job they did. And I think that that dopamine surge that people get from that small success is very strong and that creates habit pathways. My least favorite word is motivation. The most disempowering word, because people who are motivated they don't know why they're motivated. They're just motivated. Something happened in their life. They're motivated. We're, we're motivated people. And even in our family, pretty motivated. My daughter comes to me and says, dad, and she took the SAT at 11. Dad, I'm, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm sad. I'm not, you know, Alex is doing this and you're, I'm not, I said, there's no such thing as motivation because if you're relying on an emotion to be there all the time, none of us have that. This is how the brain works with motivation. You create a clear goal, a smart goal, specific, measurable, attainable, relevant to a bigger concept of meaning and time bound. And you create small steps of success. And guess what happens? After a few cycles of that success, the brain's number one function is naming, emotionally naming things. I like it. I don't like it. Not in those words, but in those feelings. And as the direction of success mounts, the brain says, I like it. I like it. I like it. Boom. You have motivation or mechanism of motivation, when you have clear goals and steps of success towards that. So here it is. The person comes in and says, you know, I'm eating this much sugar. And we find out after a week of, they come, you know, they've done their diary. I eat this much meat. I have this much sugar, cheese. I say, which one do you think you can change? Cheese. Okay. You're consuming this much cheese. For the next six weeks, we're going to reduce that by 50%. Your cholesterol level is this. And in, in, in a couple of months, we're going to check your cholesterol level again. We're going to reduce it. And you're going to stick to this alone. Don't change anything else. And they come back and the cholesterol is lower. Initially, though, they're feeling bad because we're all addicted to patterns. Not even, even though sugar is addictive and, and cheese is addictive, literally, biologically addictive. But even beyond that, what's addictive is our comfortable patterns. That's why I say the most important pe- thing people can do is become uncomfortable. So when So after a while, that comfort level becomes discomfort and then they get over it and they come back and say, initially, I hated it, but I like it. Let's look at the lab values and the cholesterol is down. Their C-reactive protein is down almost ubiquitously. And more importantly, they were successful in doing something, not all things, which is the way that doctors do. They, you know, you have 15 minutes with a patient and regularly, hi, how are you doing? Fake smile, tap the knee, listen to the heart, prescription out the door. And at the door you say, by the way, eat healthy. What's that mean? It's, That's a- it's also like the throwaway line on a lot of clinical studies, right? Right at the end, it's like, and lifestyle modification. Right. Yes. Like, what <laughs> exactly. does that mean? What is that? Oh, I'll tell you what that means. So frustrating. I should remember that study. We, we were, and this is a major study, Columbia University, everybody right. else. Know, we were in the working group. We came in late in the working group, yes. a couple of weeks into this, and they were go, going over the data. And they said the lifestyle intervention failed in cognition. Yeah. Was like, that was the title. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Lifestyle intervention failed at changing whatever the outcome was. Yeah. And we said, we were curious, what was the intervention? And what was the intervention? 
It was a protein bar. <laughs> Replacing one meal with a protein bar. I'm not allowed to take the name of the company. No, no. But I mean, it's, it's just, just ridiculous. It's an umbrella term. Yes. Yes. So that's the cynicism that we're facing. Um, but, but, but small steps, achievable steps, one element, and then a second behavior. And by the third behavior, you have a highway of habit pathways. That's how you change habits. That's how you change behaviors. And, and most of us, 99% of our behavior is habits. Even our political views, even our concepts, everything is habits. This talk's probably become a habit by now for you and I. <laughs> yes. but, but habits, by the way, and most of those habit pathways we've gained in our teenage years. So when I give talks or we give talks, we say, really, you want to stick to your teenage habits? It's time to challenge. It's time to reprogram. And you reprogram one element at a time. It has to be one element at a time. And success, then, then that's, how you, that's how we do it anyway. And, and the results are amazing. It really is. I mean, you, you not only see this fog lifting off where people are actually sharper, they tend to reverse their numbers as far as the bad numbers are concerned for neuropsychological testing, their memory testing. They get better at that. And then you get all these other phenomenon that are outside of brain health too. Like, for example, there are many patients who come in with their you know prostate-specific antigen markers, PSA, being very high. That's a marker of you know prostate health. Even that plummets and gets better. Their blood pressure gets better. Their cholesterol reverses. They lose weight, so they become more active and just overall happy people. I'm assuming that the, this, the overall diet or end goal or whatever your sort of yeah. the philosophy on food is, is it similar to those of like a Dean Ornish and Dr. Esselstyn and what Neil Barnard and Michelle McMacken talk about? Absolutely. Completely. Yeah, completely. it is absolutely the same thing. And it's the same thing that we've seen over and over again in scientific studies. And, and so the great thing is, because I was just sitting here thinking, well, how would someone, would they know if I had mild cognitive impairment, but really it doesn't matter because whether you have it or not, right. this is the diet that you should be going to for, for brain health. Absolutely. Well, yeah, even for, for younger individuals, because we get, you know, um, people in their 20s, um, even Dean actually has some teenagers in his clinic too, and they're concerned about their brain health because focus. Focus gets, gets affected the most with bad lifestyle, whether it's bad diet or poor sleep or exercise. And focus is the gateway to memory. That's how you create memories. And if you are able to improve focus and attention, you will have an incredible brain. You know, the capacity of which is just not existing in any, any computers. And so it's not just disease prevention, it's promotion of brain health. It's becoming more aware of things. It's living an unforgettable life. And we always say, live as if you do have the risk factors because, you know, Alzheimer's disease or dementia doesn't happen overnight. Uh, it takes about 20 to 30 years for these pathological processes to exist, to cause enough damage in the brain for it to manifest. So live as if you have the risk factors and you're not going to experience it anytime. Sure. And I, I saw you also posted, this is sort of a little side side note, but I saw you posted a study about fruit and vegetable consumption and depression. Yes. Yes. A lot of the drugs we have is almost like chemotherapy or older chemotherapy. So older chemotherapy was poison, right? So you gave poison to cells that reproduce rapidly and cells that reproduce rapidly are usually cancer cells. So you kill the cancer cells before you killed your own. That's why you, people lost hair and skin and all that stuff. So, 
But people don't realize that a lot of our other drugs for brain are also the same way. They're blunt, meaning that, for example, if antipsychotic drugs take away the dopamine or lower the dopamine level, not in a very specific way, although some of the newer ones go a little bit higher level of specificity, for example, one type of dopamine versus another type, but still it's blunt. So it's not only affecting that behavior, it's affecting all of brain. So there's almost no drug that you could be taking that affects that one particular disease and definitely no drug that actually reverses that disease process specifically. We're still using very blunt mechanisms. Okay. Every study has shown that exercise alone is three times more effective than any antidepressant for depression and anxiety. Why is nobody talking about this? Nobody, no money to be made. Depression, food, study after study, foods and its relationship with depression, as effective if not more effective than some antidepressants. Why is there no cover of Time magazine that says, eat your berries? Because there's no money to be made. There was money to be made from butter, not from berries. So this is not a anomaly. The data is there out there uh, for everybody to see. So I'm not saying that I'm, we're against medicine. We're actually completely the opposite. When there is need for medicine, it should be there, but it should never be the way it is now, which is it's assumed that somebody who's put on blood pressure medicine, they're on it for the rest of their life. Let's take blood pressure medicines. Blood pressure medicines don't reverse disease. What they do is artificially keep the arteries open. Arteries that have become tighter, and clogged because of lifestyle. Now, you use one blood pressure medicine, which all keeps it open for a little bit, but you have done nothing for lifestyle, right? That's so it's essentially a Band-Aid to allow you to continue to leave the lifestyle. And worse than a Band-Aid. The damage is continuing because you didn't do anything for underlying lifestyle, right? So now, after a while, now you need two blood pressure medicines because you didn't do anything for underlying cause. So that keeps it open a little longer. And then after two years, three medicines. By then it's too late. The only way you should be doing this is if somebody comes in with high blood pressure, definitely high blood pressure medicine acutely. And, but lifestyle must be instituted because if you want to reverse some of this damage, that only that can actually reverse the disease process. Then slowly you take them off that. Same thing with antidepressants. We're not against it. If somebody's severely depressed, you put them on antidepressants. But if you don't bring in the lifestyle factors, which is even more than just exercise and nutrition, we're talking about socialization and all that and cognition, you're not doing any benefit. After a while, that medicine is not going to be enough. Then a third and a fourth, then it's too late. So for dementia and Alzheimer's, right, and, and brain health overall, aside from nutrition as a, as a lifestyle factor and a very important one, and maybe we can talk about the blue zones here, they also seem to have, you know, very meaningful connections with friends and family. They live a life of purpose. Um, on top of that, what about mentally stimulating activities like reading a book or listening to a podcast? How does all of this also play into the reduction of risk of cognitive um, decline? We, we've, we've used the acronym. This is one of the little silly things we've done, but we, I think it's helpful. We, our acronym is neuro self-serving, but it's okay. N E U R O N is for nutrition E is for exercise. U is for unwind, which is about stress management, not stress reduction, actually increasing good stress. We'll talk about that. R is restorative sleep. 
not just sleep. You can knock people out, but if they don't go through the cycles, it's, it's no benefit. And O, which is the most important, as much as my master's is in nutrition and hers and everything, mental activity is the most protective thing for the brain. Challenging mental activity, those are the five elements. Then if we said that if people optimize all these five elements, they will not get, majority of people, except for that 3%, will not get. By the way, the 3% is not 3% of the population. 3% of people who develop Alzheimer's have uh, those three genes. But in the population, those three, gene, three genes are very rare. So, uh, so neuro. So yeah, yeah, if you want to talk to the exercise and other components. Yeah. So, so there are certain lifestyle factors that provide the right kind of environment for the brain to grow and thrive. Nutrition provides the right environment for it. Stress management provides the right environment and sleep does that as well. Exercise and cognitive activity is what pushes the brain to make more connections. It actually makes or, or provides the necessary environment for the brain cells to make connect with each other. Now, neurons can make as little as two or three connections or as many as 30,000 connections. And these connections are what have been termed as cognitive resilience or cognitive reserve. It's like that money you put in your brain bank account for the rainy day. And people who do all of these things at the same time in a very comprehensive, multifaceted way are the most protected. And that's how, that's what you see in most of the blue zones. So <laughs> I think maybe to round this out, right, I'm just thinking about your paper. I'm, I'm very excited for that to come out and to be able to read that. No doubt the listeners are too. But what's what's the big picture here? Like, what's What would you like to see that paper change in terms of the overall system and how you can reach the most number of people and prevent uh, the most amount of these neurological conditions? Do you see, do you want, you know, influence at a, a government level? Is this a medical school change? Where do you see that change happening to make the greatest impact? It's definitely not medical school. Medical schools should do what they're doing, which is sick care. We have to understand that sick care. But there should be more emphasis on healthcare and prevention, and there isn't. There should be much greater emphasis. And healthcare is in your homes and in your communities. So that's why our work at Beach Cities, which is at a community-wide, the only project of its type at the brain, for the brain health, where 130,000 people were hoping to actually implement a brain health initiative, which is not just dementia avoidance, but depression, anxiety, stress, and all of that stuff as well. It's at the level of the community that you can make the most difference. Remember that the blue zones, besides nutrition, one of the, the most common factor they had was community. Sometimes it was religious community, sometimes it was just community. So communities becoming closer, communities having access. And public health is about access. Access to appropriate information. That's a battle we're talking about with this keto, paleo, you know, all these just junk. Uh, I mean, and that's, that's, that, that's going to be a forever yeah. going battle. I mean, with, with social media and, and essentially a channel now that anyone can become an authority. Yes, exactly, exactly. And, and so that's a battle, that, but, but at least the rest of us should consolidate, organize, and, and, and provide a, a system of data analysis that uh, people see, okay, here's two papers, here's 2,000 papers. I mean, there's a, there's a disparity there. Um, the, so access to information, access to resources. Communities should have access to good nutrition, good environments for walking and exercising, good environments for people to connect. Remember neuro, nutrition, exercise, stress management. We live in one of the most 
you know, high, high income communities in the country. Yet the data over and over comes back and says, what's the, they have some of the highest stress. Well, part of it is the traffic here in LA. And this is not even the center of LA. This is beach, you know, Manhattan Beach, Redondo Beach. I think which Simon is, experienced that today. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I was like, guys. No, no, no. It's, <laughs> no, it was good. And, and so stress management for kids, you know, for kids to just become aware of their own inner states. I mean, I'm, we're getting a little outside, but that's important. So stress management, which for us is increasing good stress, which is purpose-driven stress. Fourth is sleep. Nobody gets good sleep anymore. And, and our answer is the next pill, the next pill, the next pill. And fifth is mental activity, which is social activity, not Sudoku, not little dots on a screen, sitting around with the community, playing cards, sitting around book clubs, talking to people. Mm-hmm. There's, that is exponentially more involving of totality of the brain than these little artificial mechanisms. So that's the mechanism. And it's not expensive. It's actually just creating a focus that redirects towards community. And and even with the people who are creating conflict, which is the nutrition people, it's okay. It's one level of conflict, but the others, they don't, there's no conflict on exercise. There's no conflict on stress. There's no conflict on sleep. There's no conflict on mental activity. Let's unite around that. And that would be enough. Nutrition, even in nutrition, we were on a, with, uh, with one of the people that was keto has, is creating a, um, a documentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they asked us to be part of it, which is incredibly, uh, um, I mean, it's amazing that even though they know what we say, they wanted us to be part of it. it, it I, I assume it was my looks, but I, I don't think so. <laughs> it was your looks. <laughs> it was my looks. Okay, we'll go with that. <laughs> but it's, it's, so, so what did they have you comment on? Uh, they said, we have no conflict. Everybody agrees that plants are good. I said, but you do know that I actually have, we have a whole podcast and making fun of keto and the ketogenic diet and and all that. They said, okay, we won't focus on that, but we'll focus on the plants. I said, okay, as long as they know that, you know, our voice is for plants, that means that our voice actually gets in even in that population. That was great. So there are places, elements of health in general that we can agree on. And where do we agree on that? In the community. That's where there is no controversy. That's where there's no political controversy. That's where we can make the biggest impact. Beautifully said. Final note, is there anything that we haven't covered today that you think is an important part of this conversation to close it out? One element is children. Right. I think that people who are most interested in this is uh, this element, this uh, component of healthcare is uh, they think it's in the chronic disease later age. The two elements, the two components of life which need the most attention is midlife and after and childhood. So in the United States, one of the most highly diagnosed diseases is ADHD, ADD. So men. So you take hunter-gatherers, millions of years, thousands of years, hunter-gatherers, and you put them, men, and you put them in a classroom with 35 other boys, and you ask them to sit quietly for eight hours, and you've given them a sugary breakfast, with bacon, egg, and cheese as well, with fat and everything else. Kind of setting them up for failure, right? (laughs) Absolute failure. That's true. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and then when they can't do that, and they're being creative, actually, that some of that mishap, which I used, I would have definitely been called ADHD. I was that kid too. Oh, we we all, yeah. I think more more people than- I would have been on five medicines. (laughs) But actually, that's creativity. Instead of redirecting that creativity, instead of creating new environments, and instead of focusing on the food that goes into you, or channels of stress management, we just medicate. And blunt medicine 
a drug that actually hyperactivates, which then slows down. Not just one part of the brain, the entire brain. I'm not saying that there are not people who don't require that drug. There are not people who really truly have ADHD, but a great majority are being just titled that and not the, uh, and, and the elements that can truly affect their brain at the most susceptible part, the development part of their life. Uh, are there, food is not being addressed. Exercise is not being addressed. In fact, less and less now. Stress management is not being addressed, just timeouts. And sleep is not being addressed. All of the kids have, are sleep deprived and mental activity and its effect and, and its complexity is not being addressed. And if we do that at the children level and then throughout life, healthcare will change as we know it. It's a really important point. And I think it summarizes the whole discussion today that this is this neurological decline doesn't just start when we get older and it's a, it's something that we we all need to go away and, and try and implement where whatever we can straight away. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's very well said. Thank you very much for today's conversation. It's a pleasure. Like like both of, of you, my my grandma actually had Alzheimer's. So I know firsthand how devastatingly sad the disease is. Yeah. So I can't thank you enough for all the work that you guys are, are doing and the way that you're changing the world. Oh. Thank you for what you're doing. Yes. Um, you're you're uh, the front person in help public health and uh, changing the world. We are, we're glad to be part of this team. It's a, it's a pleasure. Thank you. So if, if folks would like to connect with you guys, and and I think I would urge everyone to and, and to see the science that you guys post and the way you break it down, how can they find you? We are Team Sharesai on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And our website is teamsharesai.com. Um, we're also on YouTube. Um, and then all the profits of the book go to our Healthy Minds Initiative. It's a non-for-profit organization that Dean and I created, uh, completely focused on dispersing information like this to communities that don't have access. So whoever buys our book, thank you for contributing the, to the Healthy Minds Initiative. The Alzheimer's Solution and and the podcast. Tell, tell us quickly about the podcast. Yes, yes. So Dean and I are launching our podcast. It'll be called Brain Health and Beyond. And we're planning on launching the first series in May. Well, I look forward to, to listening to it. Thank you. And I'll put all of that in the show notes. That's Appreciate it. Thank you, you so Thank much. You much. Thanks, guys. Holy smokes. Please share this wide and far. I've, I've seen the effects of dementia firsthand with my grandmother, as I said at the end there. And we need to be doing all we can to help people avoid this. It's truly a devastating disease. So please share this wide and far. After the episode, I, I received a copy of their kid's book. Age 9 and 11 authored two books together and, and have both already sat and passed their college entrance exams. I was startled by how brilliant they were. So we decided that we would do a follow-up episode specifically on how to get more out of our brain as children and also as adults. So that one's coming in a few weeks' time, and I cannot wait to share it with you. If you learned something today or have any questions, we would love to hear from you. Shoot us a DM or post a story and tag us on Instagram at plant underscore proof and at team Sherzai. Also, if you haven't yet and have a spare minute, I would be so grateful if you could leave a quick review for this show on iTunes. It takes about two minutes. Thanks, friends. Catch you in the next episode.